Our podcast this week. It's T Thanksgiving. Yes, we give special T Hanks as Tom Hanks. Yes, Tom Hanks drops in to talk about Bridge of Spies and the Burbs. I'm so excited. While there's usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast, I can't quite believe the first word of The Force Awakens is this. What is it? This. It's what? It's this. The first word is this. What? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> and scene uh, and continue on for forever and ever and ever it's this apparently this this is that the, the first, first word, word of the crawl or the first word of the first the, the first spoken word spoken huh. by Andy Serkis is this this Interesting. oh this spoiler alert oh my yeah. god look at us and you Abbott and Costello uh, right hello pod I'm Chris Hewitt uh, welcome to the Empire Podcast that was shambolic but never mind as ever I'm joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning first up is our geek queen you've already heard her uh, a lady who responded and this is true uh, to this week's it's not supernatural this week because you responded yeah. to this week's Captain America Civil War trailer the only way she knows how by sending me Cap and Bucky slash fiction it was it was very good um, I enjoyed it very much <laughs> Helen O'Hara how are you hello I would like to make clear that this is the, literally the only piece of <laughs> slash yeah, slash yeah. fan fiction I've ever okay. read alright no true uh, a, a friend called Hello Taylor um, she has another name but anyway on Twitter recommended it once and I read it and I'm like if all fan fiction is this good why am I not reading more fan fiction anyway so uh, four minute window check it out uh, but it is yeah <laughs> If you're into Cap and Bucky, it's a Cap and Bucky story. Fifty Shades of Buck. <laughs> so essentially, just you know, give let's give the the listeners a, a little rundown of what happens in that. Well, um, it's happens. basically uh, it's kind of set after the Winter Soldier, so mm-hmm. it's already out of date. You know, Ultron has slightly changed a few things. Oh. Um, but uh, it's basically Bucky trying to get Cap away from the Avengers so they can live together in love. <laughs> it's lovely. It's the greatest love story of our times. Um, <laughs> next, next up, we have one of our growing cabal of junior online writers, uh, a mysterious man, a man whose ways are shrouded in shadow, a man who is yet to get an office nickname. It's a man with no nickname, John Nugent. How are you? <laughs> I'm well. How are you? Yeah, I'm okay. I mean, if he's that much of a junior, maybe we should just call him Indiana. <laughs> maybe. I was kind of working one this week. I was kind of going... Because we had a lot of, we had, well, we had three entries uh, where I asked for people to come up with a nickname for you. And they were all like, you know, the new gent and stuff. I, I don't know. I mean, I was, yeah. John is fine. No. John, John, no. John, oh, no, well John, John, no. I'm, no. I'm happy with John. No. It's not how it works around here. Okay. The nugget? Is that what, the nougat? Oh, the nougat? Creamy nougat. No, we're back no. to Buck and Cap again. Uh, no, okay. Well, we'll, we'll work on it. You know, and as, as ever, if you have any ideas for a nickname for, for the, the J Nugel. Um, no. No? No, it's still the, not the, happening. The Nugetron? The, the, the Nugget? No. The Nugentification 2000? No. It's like I'm nine years old again. Send them in. Send them in. Use, uh, you know, use the usual hashtag, Emperor Podcast, and all that sort of stuff. Right, we have a question, and that question is via Twitter, and that question comes from Medifets, who asks, do you have a favourite movie credit, e.g., Human Toilet Consultant from Duke of Burgundy, or, for example, uh, Jeremy Irons' FISA Miracle Team from Margin Call. So, <laughs> so uh, I know the, uh, the origins of, of that one. Uh, basically, Jeremy Irons didn't have a visa in time to work on, on Margin Call for JC Chandor, and they brought in a team that worked around the clock to make sure he got it so he could come in the movie and do his scary thing. Hooray! Uh, so, hence that. Um, 
Human toilet consultant. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna leave that one there. <laughs> I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go into that one. But yeah, favorite movie credits. So kind of weird offbeat stuff. Humorous things are accepted. Mm. What well, we got? Well, I mean, in terms of humorous things, I highly recommend reading all the credits of the Hot Shots movies, the Naked Gun movies, mm. which are full of of interesting little tidbits. There's obviously you know the the best boy of the of the film is is named, and the worst boy is named as Adolf Hitler, That's right. which is very hard to argue <laughs> with. He really is quite bad. Um, they also have a lovely brownie <laughs> recipe. I can't remember which of those films it's in. I think it's Hot Shots. I think, I think it's, it's Hot, Shots Hot Shots as well. Yeah. But um, but yeah, really tasty brownies. So that's recommended. I like that they, um, I think in The Naked Gun, it, next to gaffer, it says in brackets, what's a gaffer? Yes, it does. <laughs> Which is um, a good question. It, it's a fair question. A lot of people don't know that. One of the things I love about the Naked, the Naked Gun movies is that they don't just credit people by their character names. Like, so, you know, background, you know, supporting players, day players, that sort of thing. They don't just get man on train or cop number three. They get the, the line of dialogue that they had. Mm. Mm-hmm. Which I like, because, you know, then you instantly know it. Mm. Whereas if you're looking at the credits going, who was cop number three again? But, <laughs> but you know, here you can use my radio mic. I know who that person is in Naked Gun. There you go. There's one for, uh, it's Enrico Palazzo, I think, which is <laughs> the hey, best line. it's Enrico Palazzo! Confusingly not actually Enrico Palazzo himself, yeah. Yes, Mark Holton, who actually went on to star in Leprechaun. Well wow. done, him. Well done. Well yeah. done. And he's, he's, uh, he's still knocking around. And yeah, this is interesting. Oh, the IMDb is just like a sort of gateway drug, isn't it? To, mm-hmm. to, to more stuff. IMDb. To more IMDb. <laughs> he was in an episode of uh, NCIS. I hope he had the same line. <laughs> I hope that's all he does throughout the rest of his career. He just pops up in movies and goes in movies and TV shows and goes, Hey, it's Enrico Palazzo! <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how artistically fulfilling that would be. What if it's all he can say? I don't think that's likely. Is it? Is it? I mean, is it unlikely, Helen? I'm not a doctor, so I will preface my remarks. No, you are a fully trained barrister. I am, but I don't. I, I, I'm not aware of any psychological conditions which would make it maybe likely he got, that he would be able to say one line and no more. Maybe he was bitten by a radioactive Enrico Palazzo when he was a child, <laughs> therefore giving him the ability to only say, "Hey." It's Enrico Palazzo! I mean, it's a stroke of luck that a film came along that could cast someone with this rare condition. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, I would, I think that would be the worst superpower ever. <laughs> Maybe not. Say, for example, Enrico Palazzo were a real person. Okay. Okay? Say, for example, Enrico Palazzo wanted to rob a bank and yeah. he was in disguise in yeah. the bank, okay? And the cops didn't know which oh. one it was. Oh, who do we shoot? Along comes Mark Holton, <laughs> points him out, Hey! It's Enrico Palazzo! Okay, you know what? In that very specific circumstance, yeah. <laughs> which relies like on a lot of things lining up, cosmically speaking, I, then uh, it would definitely be a superpower I that, love this that guy. literally I love anyone this guy else so could do. Imagine it, though. Imagine this guy's career. Um, and uh, uh, next up is Mark Holton. He'll be reading for the parts of Hamlet. Uh, in your own time, Mark. <clears throat> hey, it's Rick Palazzo! His agent um, must be just like, Mark, we just, we, we, you just need to expand your, your versatility a little bit. To which Mark obviously replies, Hey, it's Rick Palazzo! Dude, he's... Mark, we've been over this. <laughs> this guy is still working in Hollywood, what, 20, 25 years later. 
you know, he's doing better than any of us. So he turns so. up on the set of NCIS. Yes. And there he is. He's playing a guy called Sergeant Lin. And there he is with, you know, with Mark Harmon. Oh, amazing. <laughs> you know, shooting the shit with Gibbs and Donoso. And then the, the writer of the show realises, I have to now write in a character called Enrico Palazzo because... That's all this guy will do. <laughs> He'll literally just point at people and call them Enrico Palazzo. And that's how that episode came about. <laughs> I think there was a question we were <laughs> there answering, was wasn't there? Um, I do have so a... a <laughs> Phil Tippett on mm. Jurassic Park was credited as Dinosaur Supervisor. Yes. This has become a meme. Yeah. You know, people put up pictures of that credit yeah. just saying, you had one job, Phil. People <laughs> <One> died. <job. laughs> I mean, um, <laughs> he, he is actually, I think, a very experienced uh, oh, he's, VFX guy. He's right? an incredible he's, VFX guy. He's got his own studio. He he's, worked on Star Wars. Yep. He was one of the big guys behind Dial M. And, yep. um, but yeah, he did not keep hold of the he, dinosaurs. He did not supervise them well enough. And in a similar vein, Kyle McCulloch at Framestore was apparently credited as Earth Supervisor on Gravity. Well, Kyle, there's still a few problems around here. <laughs> all right. That job can be as difficult or as easy as you want it to be. You know, if you take it to be Earth Supervisor, so he's a bit like a Kal-El, and he flies in, around the yeah. Earth writing wrongs. He's in charge of the planet. That's a tricky Chris. job. If your job as Earth Supervisor is to make sure if there's an Earth, that's a fairly easy job. You wake up in the morning and go, yep, tick, <laughs> well, I'm done for the day. I'll be down the pub if you need me, guys. I suppose there's an element of his job that kind of was <laughs> that, you know, yes. making sure that the Earth would be there in I, the background I, as Sandra Bullock went through her trauma. I like it. I did. I did a Q and A this week uh, with Edgar Wright about Fistful of Fingers, his very first movie, which came out in 1995 and was given one star by this fine magazine. <laughs> the the film was running under, mm-hmm. so it was 74 minutes long. So to make it longer, they made the credits as long as they possibly could, and so the credits are filled with. It's, it's a it's a sucker esque spoof if you've never seen it. Uh, hopefully, it's coming out next year. Uh, so he you know he uh, he did loads of uh, funny jokes in that sucker esque in a sucker-esque fashion, including one, uh, the great disclaimer, no animals were harmed during making this movie. They were all killed. <laughs> which I like. Also, it was dedicated to Clint Eastwood, Sergio Leone, and Derek Griffiths. <laughs> which is nice. So that's a good one. There's a very good um, piece by Nick on the website with an oral history of that movie, which is mm. very much worth a read if you haven't read it already. Definitely. Yeah, it's great. Really, really great. Um... Other good credits, uh, Blofeld in For Much With Love is, the actor is credited simply as question mark. <gasps> dun, 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 dun. No! Who could it be? Who could it be? I wonder if Christoph Waltz wanted the same thing for Spectre. It's uh, Luke Skywalker. <laughs> Kylo Ren is Blofeld is Luke Skywalker. Oh, we're falling down the rabbit hole. I really like uh, Monty Python always messed around with credits at the start oh, of yeah. uh, the Holy Grail they've got yeah, the moose the moose yeah, yeah. Uh, an American Werewolf in London has an end title congratulating Prince Charles and Princess Diana on their recent wedding oh yes it does <laughs> uh, that went well the Beatles help was dedicated to Elias Howe who invented the sewing machine in 1846 those crazy Beatles oh and uh, Pixar movies they always have production babies yes they at do the yes. End. so uh, all the babies born to Pixar staffers during the making of whatever that movie is get uh, immortalised in the credits which is pretty sweet because it takes so bloody long to make a Pixar film it yeah. does yeah there were loads on Good Dinosaur which of course has been in the works for quite some time I there's, this isn't quite a credit in that it's not written down it's spoken but I have a very very big soft spot for Dragnet 
I mean, in all sorts of ways, but also because it has the great line, uh, the story you're about to see is true. Names have been changed to protect the innocent. For example, George Baker is now called Sylvia Weiss, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which is absolutely wonderful. Uh, There's Charlie Kaufman's adaptation, which was co-written by his fictional brother, Donald Kaufman. (laughs) That's true. Yes. Uh, I think that's the first fictional person ever to receive an Oscar nomination, actually. Um, The Coen Brothers editor. I stand corrected. Roderick James. Roderick James. Uh, Now, I'm not 100% sure which nomination came first, but uh, but I think think Donald Kaufman is the first one to win. You've got to be quite annoyed if you're someone like say Leonardo DiCaprio and you're like <laughs> I've been nominated five times four times haven't won yet and yet some dude who doesn't even exist has an Oscar it, it seems a little unfair it does seem a little unfair and Mark Holton remains ungarlanded by awards this could be the year this could be just imagine his acceptance speech <laughs> what would he say I know what he'd say He'd say, thank you very much indeed for this Oscar. It means a lot to me. Uh, I'd like to dedicate this to Enrico Palazzo! Uh, right, let's move on. Because, obviously, we're not exhaustive. If we've missed anything, if there are any great movie credits, any strange movie credits that uh, we've overlooked or forgotten, and do send them in, and we will try and read them out if we can on the show next week. Uh, thank you very much to Metafets for the question. If you want to have your question read out in the Empire Podcast, send them in via Twitter. We're at Empire Magazine. You can use the hashtag Empire Podcast. Uh, you can Facebook us as well, where we're Empire Magazine, of course. And uh, we're on the email, podcast at empireonline.com. Right, it's uh, movie news time. Usually, when a new issue of Empire is out, we do this at the very, very end. We we plug it shamelessly at the end of the movie news. But we're going to plug it first, because it's a very, very special issue. And also, it's a very, very special occasion on the Empire podcast. We've had a lot of new voices in the podcast over the last few weeks. But now we have the newest and the most important. It's the new (laughs) editor-in-chief of Empire, Terry White. Hello. Hello. How are you? Very well. Can I have a pair rise? No. Damn it! <laughs> uh, Terry, you're here to talk about the new issue of Star Wars. I thought I'd slip it in there and see if I could just, you know, subliminally. That was smooth. <laughs> really, it. really smooth. Damn it. Um, we've got the new issue of, of Empire, which came out this week, and all good and evil news agents now. And it's a big, it's a bit of a builder. What, what is it about? What's, it, what's on it? What's so special about this one? It's a tiny, tiny film that's probably not going to take any money at all called <laughs> Star Wars, The Force Awakens. Never. Um, so this issue has been two years in the making between uh, the filmmakers and the whole Empire team. And it's pretty much probably the greatest issue of Empire probably we've ever done and definitely the greatest Star Wars issue you will be able to find. <laughs> Not overstating it at all. <laughs> Straight in with the hyperbole. I like it. This will change your life. It will change your life. The lives of your children, the lives of your relatives, even your dead ones. Well, I'm just flicking through it now. My political views have changed. It's, Comes with it's a quite amazing. for cancer as well. Yeah. Do you feel like a different man, a richer man? I no, because you just like me a pay rise, but... <laughs> But I'm, I'm, I feel happier. I feel more content. Uh, Good. So what's what's in the issue? Why why should people pick it up? So, I mean, it's got the usual 
incredible access you'd expect from us at Empire. So obviously we speak to JJ, everybody involved with making the film, incredible exclusive interviews with both people who've been with the franchise for years, Harrison Ford, Mark Hamill. And then you've also got obviously all the amazing new talent that's attached to it. So John Boyega, Daisy Ridley, Adam Driver, Gwendolyn Christie. It really is every single person who's been involved in making this incredible movie mm-hmm. we've spoken to. Um, Simon Pegg has written an amazing yeah. piece about his relationship with Star Wars through the years. And this, this for me, is what really shines through in this issue, is everybody has a story about Star Wars. Everyone has a love and an emotional connection with Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And you get that from every single person we spoke to. And it's really, really sort of comes to the fore in Simon's piece, which is about his lifelong love affair with Star Wars. The very first time he saw it, I actually got a tear in my eye and I have a dead heart <laughs> when I read his piece. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a really, really incredible issue. And it's so rich. Everything basically you want to know is in there. Everybody who has a love for Star Wars will find something they connect with in this issue. And if anybody leaves it with a dry eye, <laughs> they can come and see me personally. That's not a good idea, don't no. it? Yeah. Or address it. No. <laughs> uh, but there, there are other things as well uh, to talk about the issue. I mean, the covers are astonishing. Yeah, so uh, we really went to town on the issues. We did six lenticulars, which um, is a fancy word for 3D. Um, <laughs> and yeah, they really look incredible. And then alongside that, we um, also with Sainsbury's did a special deal where you can get a figurine. It's a slightly high price. It's eleven ninety nine, but essentially you get an incredible Kylo Ren figurine plus a boxed issue of Empire. Mm. So, yeah, so it's probably the most ambitious thing we've ever done. Um, It was done with the filmmakers. Um, It's the first time we've ever done anything of this scale and it really just shows how much we love this movie, how much we know how all of our guys love this movie. So, yeah, I'd urge everybody... It's, yeah, it's fantastic. The, the action figure thing is, is extraordinary. Yeah. We had, we had, we had one in the office and I was playing with it today. I didn't take it out of the box and play with it. Never it, take know. it out of the box. If I'd known that as oh, a kid... haven't you seen Toy Story 2? Come on, people. <laughs> Honestly, if I'd known Free as a kid, I wouldn't be here. Because I had so many Star Wars toys. and I, if, if I'd kept them in their boxes pristine, I could have been... I'm probably a multi-millionaire by now, but it was, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, so the covers are Kylo yeah. Ren. There's a great Kylo Ren one. There's uh, there's the Daisy Ridley as, yeah. as Rey. So there's Rey and BB-8. There's Captain Phasma, Finn, mm. Poe Dameron, Kylo Ren, and then a Han Solo and Chewbacca. Which is which my is favourite oh, colour. Because incredible. my favourite Star Wars character is on the cover. Chewbacca uh, I'm very very excited about it uh, but there's other stuff in there as well for people who maybe the weird the weirdos uh, who don't like Star Wars so there's, there's a great Burt Reynolds feature yeah incredible in um, Nick DeSemelin went and spent a few days with him in Florida he now runs this um, acting school with Burt's permission he wasn't, Bert, yeah. <laughs> he wasn't <laughs> living inside the walls of Burt's house he was in a bush outside Burt's house <laughs> he had full permission to do so um, it's incredible it's a real portrait of you know a man who's who has had an incredible career in Hollywood um, really great feature. There's exclusive looks at Zoolander 2, mm-hmm. Fantastic Beasts, um, Grimsby, a yeah. great set report from Sherlock. And then there's just some great end of year stuff. So review of the year, mm-hmm. Christmas gift guide and... Star Wars does dominate, but we also do have an incredible feature where we went and spent four days on the set of Hateful Eight. Yeah. Basically on the hunt for Quentin Tarantino. I won't tell you if we found him because that'd be spoiling it for you. Um, 
So yeah, it's a it's a cracking issue. It's no, I don't just say that because I'm. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, it's your second issue now. It is. Uh, how, how are you finding Empire? You can, you can tell us we're doctors. <laughs> You're all really lovely. Um, <laughs> the rest of them out there. Yeah. <laughs> Those people outside who can't hear us, awful human beings. <laughs> Not to create a schism in the team, but. <laughs> Must fire all of them. No, it's amazing. I mean, it really is. You know, before I worked here, it was a very long-held ambition of mine to do so. It's the truly the greatest film brand in the world. Anywhere you go, people love Empire. I was in a cab in LA last week and I told the guy what I did and he was American and you, it's actually really hard to buy it unless you get the iPad version and he spent 20 minutes driving down sunset shouting at me about what an amazing magazine Empire was um, so yeah so oh, you were clawing at the, at the door, <laughs> door handle I, I was in the boot which made it quite awkward <laughs> so you know not to it's early days yet but not to give too much away but you know what are your plans for Empire what have, what, what have you got in store uh, well, I think we're in a really interesting place in terms of what I'd call screen entertainment. And, you know, it's never been more accessible. People are watching more than ever. You know, the influence of things like streaming, the ways um, and the means by which people can see movies and amazing cinematic television have never been more exciting or greater. So I think we'll probably see a little bit more exploration into that world. But I mean, really, I've got, I've totally landed on my feet here. I've inherited. <laughs> <laughs> this incredible this incredible film magazine that gets the greatest access to the greatest people written by the greatest writers and edited by the greatest editors in the business so I think don't break it really is, uh, <laughs> is my aim um, but I think we'll have some really interesting things going on in terms of bringing film to life I suppose is what I'd say so working on doing cool events um, basically doing screenings things like that which really bring film to the guys out there and and people should really watch out for those things because we will be taking Empire into the real world ah. well, Shall I dust my coat off? It's quite cold out there <laughs> It is I'll bring the gloves and scarves Okay Alright uh, and you know you're you're a massive huge film fan I mean some of the things I'm discovering about you as you've you've uh, over the last couple of months, is your massive John Waters fan? I am, yeah. <laughs> is he like? Is he like the the one for you? Yeah, um, in what he, sense? Well, you know, Maybe not like in, a Sam Raimi, in a romantic way. You know, <laughs> yeah. just both drawn on the pencil mustaches and <laughs> going out for the evening. Um, you know, Sam Raimi is my my hero. Is John yeah. Waters yours? He is, yeah. And I interviewed him a couple of years ago in New York, and he was everything you would hope he would be. You know, he was doing really interesting things in New York on the underground when when he was really doing something incredibly different. You know, he talked to me about getting the bus from Baltimore, sneaking to New York, all the amazing things he saw. They told me about how he saw a hooker do a shit in the street and how it, <laughs> how it really upsets him that that doesn't happen in New York anymore. I was like, you are going to the wrong place. <laughs> uh, but I mean, you know, he's really early, early stuff. You watch it now and it's, you know, it's hardly maybe the greatest, the greatest films, especially his short stuff. It's, they're hardly the greatest films in the world, but they're they're really interesting, and you can see as an auteur exactly his style and what he has in mind, and and he's just all about breaking boundaries, doing really provocative stuff. Um, even you know people often talk about Crybaby and Serial Mom, mm. and and those being kind of him moving towards the mass market, and but they're still mental, like absolutely <laughs> mental. Um, yeah, I love Pink Flamingos, huge fan of Divine. I think their collaboration and their creative partnership was 
incredible and when when i spoke to him he you could tell how much he really missed divine and missed mm. the the magic they brought together on the screen you know and he told me this amazing story about the first time he met divine and divine was stood by the side of the road waiting for the bus for, to school and he drove past and he was like the fuck is that and immediately knew he had to to make this person his friend and um they did some incredible incredible stuff together the bfi recently ran the john waters season mm. and seeing those things on the big screen at you know this amazing venue and you've got this audience of people watching pink flamingos and and watching you know divine eat dog shit and and it's just it's still every time i see it and especially seeing it on the big screen it just brings me out in goosebumps every time and he's actually the limited edition subscribers cover at this point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So also, dog shit free with every issue of Empire. That would be the last issue of Empire ever. It would be just what a way to bow out. Just dry, dried or you know, as it is in the film, you know, runny and fresh. Well, I think you know, if you're going oh, to commit, if you're going to commit, it has to be fresh. No? Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. I guess. Come on, people. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, prudes. Yeah. Um, you're so square. But actually, I mean, I have to say, my love of film was kind of born early by... I had this real taste for brutality when I was really young. <laughs> so when I was um, eight, my favourite film was Scum. And um, I'd got it on wow. video from a boy at school. And I started to just watch it. I've, uh, video, by the way, for everybody who doesn't know, is what used to happen before the internet. And it was... It, I remember just watching it and being like, this is amazing so amazing and when my mum would go out I'd just play it over and over again like and I became obsessed with that and the craze with the Kemp with the Kemp twins which is not my finest moment Please this is really putting your issue meetings in a new light this, <laughs> yeah. this explains everything why you come in with a with a sock full of snooker balls <laughs> and, yeah. and a samurai sword <laughs> yelling I'm the daddy yeah. I'm the daddy now Chris <laughs> um, and then my yeah and it's all I've always had I think a taste for beautiful brutality is what I call it so then I moved to Kez which was slightly more poetic arguably um, and my favourite film is Godfather 2 closely followed by True Romance um, so if there isn't one scene of gratuitous violence in a movie I tend to be incredibly disappointed <laughs> you have come to the right place uh, <laughs> yeah. not because there's no gratuitous violence in the Emperor podcast obviously but you know obviously it's, <clears throat> we don't get on that sort of thing awesome well thank you so much for, uh, for coming in and plugging the magazine thank you for having me it is a cracking issue that was the soothing strains of Terry White, the new editor-in-chief <laughs> of Empire. Yeah. Brutality and swearing. And dog shit. But I didn't get a pay rise. Damn it. Well, I'll work on that. I'll work on that. Two out of three. Our door is always open. Uh, right, should we talk about movie news? Problem, of course, this week yeah. is that it's tea Thanksgiving in the uh, American states. That's true. So, hmm, not a lot of movie news out there. Not a huge amount, but the important thing is that there was a Captain America Civil War trailer. What? Yes. Oh my god! Squee! Squee indeed. Uh, so if you, I mean, obviously podcast not the right forum to talk about trailers, what with being oral, not visual. However, I do recommend very much watching it as at your earliest convenience. This one... Um, hey Helen, do you know what I also recommend? What's that? I recommend going on to EmpireOnline.com and checking out our exclusive trailer breakdown. Uh, With the Russo where, brothers. Where I talk to the Russo brothers, yes. Joe, Anthony, and Simon. <laughs> <laughs> let's just let's just stop after Anthony. Let's just stop after Joe yeah. and Anthony. Yes, lovely men. Yeah. Very, very smart. Very, very clued up. Uh, mm. Know exactly what they're doing with this film. And uh, as someone who was on set might have said if they weren't embargoed. Who could that person possibly be, Helen? I, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, theoretically. But this is a film that... Uh, 
I think we're all very excited about it. I hope we're all very excited about it. I think it's going John? to be really good. Yes. Are you excited about it? I am. This is one of the rare comics that I've actually read. Um, so I am very excited about this. Of course, it's going to have very little to do with that storyline. Yes. That, right? Well, it, it, it's, the trailer shows a lot of Bucky. Like, that seems to be a big thrust. I think... Right? Ooh, oh, well, that's uh, an I interesting choice of words. <laughs> I think Bucky is going to be a bit of a flashpoint here. Um, I think well, it's that's clear... that's an interesting choice of words. Yeah. I think it's clear from the end of uh, The Winter Soldier. I don't think I'm giving anything away here or well, telling that's tales. That's an impressive choice of words. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> just stop it now. Let's just oh, everything assume is everything is a euphemism. Okay. 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 So it was clear from Winter Soldier. It's climax. Climax, it's the big climax. Say. The big climax of the Winter Soldier where Bucky really went to town <laughs> on Steve. <laughs> Well, he did. He really, he, he really him beat pummeling, him up. Yeah. He did. He pummeled him with his mighty fist. <laughs> That's right. And, uh, and yeah. it was, but it was clear by the end of that film when he pulled him out of the water that he was beginning to maybe remember slightly who he was and slightly overcome his conditioning. Now, if we've also seen, and I think we all have, the Ant Man post credit sting, we'll know that Steve and Sam find Bucky. We saw him. You know, Steve has been looking for him. We know that from that throwaway line in. Avengers. We know from Ant-Man that he's found him, which it will, which will appear a, a slightly different version of that scene is in this film. It's going to be a little bit sort of into the film as they as they established to you, Chris. Mm. Um, and that is going to be, I think, a, a big problem for everyone else um, because obviously the Winter Soldier has uh, you know a rap sheet a mile long um, and has been causing all sorts of chaos around the world. Not to mention that whole thing with the helicarriers falling on Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's going to be in a little bit of trouble if he turns up. And equally, we're, we can be pretty sure that Steve isn't going to f- feel he's responsible, what with the whole brainwashing thing. Yeah, so so the story, as far as I understand it, of Civil War, in the comics, uh, the government wanted to introduce superhero registration yes, because of a, a massive event, a bad event, involving uh, Speedball. Mm-hmm which left several hundred people dead. Yes, many children. Children as well, children as well indeed. That, so but basically, but in this, it's, it's very, very different. The For me, from what I'm guessing, the event that actually sparks off the idea of superhero registration in this movie is Age of Ultron. Yes. Uh, and Ultron trying to drop... A city. A city onto the world. Uh, but luckily, Earth Supervisor... <laughs> Kyle McCullough. Kyle McCullough, he, uh, he was there. He stopped it. He went, no! Don't do that, Ultron. Deleted scene. Oh, okay. Um, And uh, so it didn't happen. And so that sparks off the government, in this case personified by General Thaddeus Thunderbolt Ross, played by William Hurt. Remember me from uh, The Incredible Hulk. Yes, I'm back. Rent it if you you want. Um, He's back. uh, And so he wants to introduce something called the Sokovia Accords, which essentially means superhero registration, that vigilanteism is no longer going to be tolerated. And so this, a line is therefore drawn. I think this is directly related then to something Bucky does. And so Steve Rogers, Captain America, says no to superhero registration. Screw you, government. Um, I'm going to go off on my own and do my own thing. And then he's up against a f- very interesting uh, nemesis in this one. Who who is it, Helen? Who who's he fighting? Who says yes to superhero registration? Um, Tony does, uh, aka Iron Man again yes. for being formal. So yeah, so the idea is, I think that that um, he's been he was first suffering a little bit of post traumatic stress after the events of the first Avengers. We saw that a little bit in Iron Man three, and then in uh, Avenger- Age of Ultron. Of course, it's all his fault. And while he doesn't immediately 
outwardly sort of take responsibility for that when challenged. I think he's one of these guys who kind of thinks about it a little bit and then realises, oh dear, I really screwed up and I should probably fix that. So mm. the idea is that this is that, he has reached that point now. Um, and so he is now trying to essentially make up for past mistakes by supporting this Sokovian Accords, which, I mean, and it is one of these things where it's, there's a little bit needs of the many, needs of the one thing here, because I think the, the implication from what we've seen so far is that Steve is perhaps not being as reasonable as he might be if Bucky weren't involved. Yes. And that the, the, the basic idea of regulating the use of incredibly destructive powers is not a bad one. Mm-hmm. So you can see kind of where Tony's coming from on this as well. So I think that that's the interesting thing. There are sort of antagonists in this movie. Obviously, Thunderbolt. We know that uh, that Daniel Brühl has been cast as Zemo, so we we can imagine he probably won't be the nicest man in the world. We know that uh, Frank Grillo's back as Crossbones. We know yep. he isn't a terribly nice guy. But I don't think the focus of the movie is going to be on a baddie per se. I think the focus of the movie is going to be on essentially brothers going to war. Oh my god, I'm so excited. Yeah, I showed this to my wife last night. Uh, it's the most exciting thing I've showed to my wife for many, many a while. Uh, and she was, yeah, it's interesting because she she's a big fan of the Marvel films, but she's not, you know, more of a casual observer rather than, you know, you and I who are sure. uh, emotionally invested with these people we've never met. Um, what if something bad happens to them, Chris? But she, you know, she was really excited about it. You know, the idea of Tony and Steve clashing is a, a new wrinkle. Uh, I think, we've talked about this in the podcast before, but I think the development of Tony Stark. Uh, from Iron Man, the, you know the very first hero we saw in the uh, in the Marvel universe, a man who has been quite frankly from the off in plain sight a dick, mm. um, but a, a brilliant one. The the evolution of that character to I'm not, I'm not really the bad guy in this, but to someone who will take an antagonistic stance yeah. and be very different from Tony Stark we saw it back in 2008 I think that's really clever and I think it's really good uh, character building I hope I, I hope they pull it off I would agree and I think that the, the character building of, of Captain America has been incredible as well going mm. from uh, the very idealistic kid that we saw at the beginning of the first Avenger to the really suspicious scarred wary guy yeah. in in the Winter Soldier and I think that has only been a- amplified more since then that's fascinating well as Joe Russo says in the trailer breakdown they wanted to take him from a rah-rah flag-waving patriot which he was obviously in the first Avenger to essentially at the end of this movie an insurgent yeah which is a hell of a character development well, for he's a ne- Captain He's never America. been a thoughtless patriot. No, he he's always been. been a very considered patriot, and mm. I think that's um, something we could do more of in the world today. So it's great. Oh, I love him. Let's oh, save all this discussion for our, our spoiler special <laughs> uh, next next uh, May. But that's that's um, let's talk about the trailer itself because the trailer is very interesting. There's the because first and foremost, it's a Captain America trailer, and I think. A lot of people looked at this movie when it was first announced and Civil War and the idea that, you know, the Avengers would be in the film when it was confirmed that the likes of Vision and Scarlet Witch and sure. Hawkeye and, you know, uh, Black Widow all all be in the film. That uh, they thought it would be just Avengers 2.5, which even Anthony Mackie said at one point. Yeah. It is. It doesn't seem to be that at all. It seems to be Captain America and at some point the Avengers will come into it and, and choose sides. Yeah. But... That's the impression I it's get Tony, as well. It's Tony, Stephen, Bucky seems to be the story here. I, and even, I think, Tony is a, is a supporting role out of those three. I think it's going to be more Steve, Sam and Bucky. I got the impression that they were holding quite a lot back for this trailer. True. That, that they didn't want to reveal too much, that they didn't want to spoil anything. I know at Comic-Con there was a, 
a longer trailer that had yeah. more footage with Ant-Man and, and Black Panther. Um, and we don't see any of those. We see a little bit of Black Panther, I think. But, yeah, yeah. But um, the, the full lineup of the Avengers fighting is not really revealed here, so I, I get the impression almost that we're, we're only seeing bits from the first or second acts. I think we're seeing stuff that's in the third act, but it's just not clear what, what's where. Yeah. But I do think that they're holding back, and I think there may be, you know, some of those kind of uh, splash pages with, you know, five people in the line running at other people in a line. I'm pretty sure they're deliberately leaving some mm. people out yes. of that line, which we've never seen in the MCU to mm. date. We've seen people fight. We've seen, you know, you know, Hulk will fight anyone. So will Thor. But we haven't seen that before. That the two teams of of, of heroes having to go at each other, which is in in a power kind of way um <laughs> can we but, can we talk about that and no euphemism intended here the three-way at the end of the mm-hmm. trailer uh-huh. um, that got everyone excited right yeah yeah i mean because it's cap and bucky sharing the shield yeah and using it to beat up iron man yeah because on paper that's not a fair fight um, on paper iron man just goes oh okay yeah, yeah. oh you're gone Okay, but, but yeah, the shield and their- with the shield and yeah, and also the fact that I think it's clear that he's holding back a bit because th- this is there was a, a tweet from Devin Faraci yesterday when the trailer first came out, which I thought nailed it, which is. Batman v Superman makes it look that every look like everyone hates each other, whereas uh, the the Civil War trailer makes it look like everyone loves each other, and then yeah, they're still fighting, and that's a far more interesting fight, actually. I yeah. think for me the um, the key moment in the trailer is not uh, and apologies if you don't like Marvel discussion uh, but we haven't done this for a while in fairness on the podcast the key moment for me in the trailer is not the three way fight at the end is not the appearance of Black Panther is not oh look it's a team of Avengers versus Rhodey and and, and War Machine the key moment for me is when Steve says to Tony at the end of the trailer I wouldn't wouldn't do this if I had if I didn't have any other choice he's my friend And and Tony says looking ultra pissed so was I. I don't think he's pissed there. I think he's upset. I think he's pissed. I think he's pissed. He's upset. I think it's it's everything. I think you he know. He looks heartbroken. Yeah. yeah. So I'm really intrigued to see what happens. I I, I you know I wasn't on set. <laughs> I don't know anyone in this room who was. Um, <laughs> the idea. But you know I'm just really intrigued to see how the build up to that and of course the aftermath of this this film and what this means for the MCU and what this means for these characters with Avengers Infinity War uh, looming yeah. large. Uh, I'm very very excited about it. I read one tweet uh, yesterday um, from an American film critic who was critical of the tone of the trailer being very ultra serious. And I didn't want I didn't go back and look at the trailers for the Winter Soldier, but I imagine they were also ultra serious. But we know from the Ant-Man clip that played at D23 where Paul Rudd is introduced to Steve Rogers and it's just thank you Scott for thinking of me. Yeah. yeah, Scott Lang is introduced to Steve Rogers and it's just utterly awestruck and you know, there will be hum- humor in this film, but I think it's Captain America and the Winter Soldier was quite a dark film and it's heading in that direction. I think Ant-Man was light. Guardians of the Galaxy was light. I think that the MCU has earned the right to have the darkness yeah. in amongst the, the, the fun. I mean, there's a, an arguably funny line about, you know, you, you seem defensive, Cap. Well, I'm having a bad day. Yeah. You know, there's and a little bit of... I want to punch you in your perfect teeth. Yeah. You know, all that sort of stuff. You know? And, and by good. the way, isn't it... Sorry, isn't it good that um, Cap has perfect teeth, given how poor his circumstances when growing up? So he really must have taken care. Well done, Cap. I think it's a metabolism thing. The MCU is good at 
creating moments of levity even in its more serious films i mean you know the winter soldier has some yeah. really funny moments and that's probably yeah. its most serious film i, I think we can rely on falcon actually yeah. a little bit for that yeah. yeah and quite frankly even though tony stark is going to be positioned as as a a, a force of opposition in this movie robert downey jr cannot not be funny you know, he will be funny in this film. Um, but as the Russo said, I mean, go and read the uh, literature breakdown. You know, obviously there's some stuff they didn't want to talk about. There's some stuff they didn't go into. But they were very interesting, I think, on a lot of a lot of, uh, a lot of of things. And they say that uh, Downey's performance in this movie is risky. He goes to risky places. And weirdly enough, when I talked to him, Downey, for the, uh, the Avengers Age of Ultron feature last year, we talked for quite a bit about Captain America Civil War because I was really intrigued by... You know, this guy who has been the figurehead of the Marvel Universe so far, who re-upped his deal just to appear in this movie, which doesn't have Iron Man in the title. Obviously has Iron Man all over the market materials, but, you know, his name won't be first for the first time mm. in a Marvel movie. Probably be and Robert Downey Jr., I'm guessing. And I just, I thought it was really intriguing that he would, he would appear in this movie. And I asked him why, and he said, well, you know, because the story demands it, and because it's really intriguing to see what they're doing with with Tony and he said the same thing you said he said it's not so much Tony's development that, I, that I, is why I did this movie it's Steve's and that character and what they're doing with this character is really really interesting um, so I'm I, I, you know listen Helen and I are fully paid up members of the Marvel fanboy and fangirl club we all know that but yeah very very exciting trailer for us uh, John you're you know where, where do you stand on the Marvel thing are you I certainly don't stand on it I no. mean you don't want to mess up those pristine copies but um no I'm I've, I was never a big comic book fan growing up um so I don't have that sort of that childlike nostalgia but they haven't really put a foot wrong in the films I you know one or two duds but it really that it's an unbroken run isn't it so I, I I can't see this being a bad film it's it'd be very surprising if it was I'd be amazed Fingers crossed, fingers crossed. Let's uh, move on now to some non-Marvel news. You can, you can take your, your earmuffs off now. <laughs> yeah. what have we got? What have we got? I'm going to suggest that we possibly touch on briefly the first uh, official image from Wonder Woman. Yeah, okay. Let's balance the books a little bit by talking DC. There isn't much to say about this. This is a picture of Wonder Woman in a hood wearing a sort of, um, uh, what do we call that? It's not tiara, I wouldn't say. But anyway, wearing a headdress. Yeah, what is that? It's a thing. It's just a thing. And she's in foggy London. I think I, I take from it that she's meant to be, and this is this is part of the World War One bit of the film. We know that there's a section in World War One. And if you saw the initially posted and swiftly deleted picture of Chris Pine and uh, Seg Tamuni, you'll, uh, you'll see... I did not see that. You did not? Well, I did not see that, no. He was in what looked to me like a sort of, uh, you know, World War One kind of Doughboy-esque costume. So I think that might also be from the same bit of the film. So maybe that's a bigger part of this film than we have been led so, to believe. Who knows? Steve Trevor. Steve Trevor, yes. Played by Chris Pine. Yeah. So you think that's it's going to be a bit like Captain America, the first Captain America, where it, it takes place, it's a period film, and then... We're being told it takes place in three different places. We're, we're being told that there's the, the seg- section in her home of the Miscrea, um, and then there's also a World War One section, and then there's also a modern day section. Now, that's a heck of a lot of sections, frankly. So I don't quite know how that's going to work, but apparently that's... The deal, and and it does also mean. I mean, how does Steve Trevor move from World War One? Maybe he doesn't. Maybe that's. Maybe, he doesn't. maybe he's the Peggy Carter of this story, maybe. and he stays back there, and she moves on. 
forgive me because I've I've never read sure. any of these comics. Is Wonder Woman immortal or something? Does she? L- she was formed from cl- the living clay by the by the Queen Hippolyta of the Amazons who live on Themyscira. They are a female society. Um, like you didn't know that. I mean, obviously, <laughs> uh, yeah. They're, they're certainly they're to all intents and purposes, I guess, sort of immortals. But but yeah, her origin story has changed and and been fiddled with uh, as all origin stories have over time. But that's the general one. Yeah. Interesting. So it's filming now in London with Gal Gadot yeah. uh, as Wonder Woman. Um, and we're going to see her soon in Batman v Superman, Cool on Dawn of Justice. So so the film uh, features, as we've discussed, Gadot, Pine, Tag Maui, uh, Robin Wright, Danny Houston, David Thewlis, Elena Anaya and Lucy Davis. That's a good lineup, And Paddy Jenkins, obviously, directing. Indeed. David Thewlis. David Thewlis. I, I wonder if he gets um, decapitated. <laughs> really dark. It's dark a given. Question. It's a given. Yeah, anyway, so um, fingers crossed it can deliver as hard as we all hope. In other news, uh, we're going to be talking about Black Mass in a minute, but the director, Scott Cooper, has signed up for a new film called White Knight. So he's going from Whitey Bulger and Black Mass to White Knight. I'm sure there's a colour joke here somewhere. I'm just not sure what it is. I don't... No, probably not. Um, So, yeah, he he obviously did well with Crazy Heart. Uh, Then he made Out of the Furnace. And now he's made Black Mass. And uh, so White Knight is apparently the story of a former Secret Service agent who takes a job protecting the family of an arms dealer and then finds himself at the centre of a global manhunt. It's probably his own fault for working with freaking arms dealers. But, you know, hey, that's the, de- that's the deal. Hey, Tony Stark was an arms dealer. I know. And look what happened. So a few months ago, Kenneth Branagh announced that he was going to produce and direct a remake of Murder on the Orange Express mm. uh, in which a murder takes place on the Orange Express. Um, <laughs> Agatha Christie. Clarifying. Yeah. <laughs> Agatha Christie, Hercule Poirot mystery. And we all wondered at the time who Kenneth Branagh would, uh, would get to play Hercule Poirot. And mm. now he has scoured the earth. He has. He has gone from pillar to post. Oh. He has left no stone unturned. It's it's like Scarlett O'Hara all over again, except more so. He has hunted and hunted. And eventually he found the person who is the perfect Hercule Poirot. The only real choice. The only choice. And that person is... Kenneth Branagh. Amazing. <laughs> it's amazing he was available. I mean. <laughs> well, Mark Holton read for the part, but... <laughs> but how do, you, how do you jazz it up? Maybe... A murder doesn't take place. <gasps> Maybe it's not on the Orient Express. Maybe Poirot did it. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? I've always had my suspicions about him <laughs> and uh, Miss Marple and indeed uh, Jessica Fletcher. They turn up at a country house for a nice weekend with their friends and suddenly there's a murder? Hmm, come on. Yeah. Once, maybe, but th- this goes beyond coincidence. It's a little suspicious. I think they're like Dexter. They're just actually mass murderers. Yes, it's it's the only thing that makes sense. And then they just kind of manipulate these patsies to take the fall for them. These people have got blood in their hands. A lot of blood. The only only one we know, the only detective we know doesn't kill people is Columbo. Obviously Columbo Because we see the people kill at the beginning of the the thing. Also Columbo would never, he's an angel. He is an angel. Literally. Uh, And that is true, Helen, in more ways than one. So anyway, Hercule Poirot uh, is Kenneth Branagh, uh, or Kenneth Branagh is Hercule Hercule Poirot. Hercule Poirot. Hercule Poirot. I'm really intrigued by this. We we were really excited about this whenever because you know as much as we get excited about the the big franchise films, you know there's a lot of them, uh, and it's nice to see one that isn't a franchise film. Although this will probably launch uh, a Poirot a Poirot franchise. franchise yeah. yeah, it's been a while. Yeah. 
but uh, I think he's I think he's a good choice. I just really want to know the process that led to that choice. <laughs> probably him just making up a shot list and deciding whether he could be bothered. <laughs> yeah, probably. I'll he, be he, um, interested yeah. to see what accent he goes for because it's obviously it's Belgian, right? It's Belgian. Yeah. It has to be Belgian. And I don't know if you saw Jack Ryan, but his uh, his Russian accent was. What do you mean? <laughs> Your Russian accent, good. That was the only thing that got murdered in that film. Oh! oh. <laughs> Amazing. Am I right in thinking, last time you came in here, you launched some sort of campaign against now, John Favreau. come on. And now, and now you're adding Sir Kenneth Branagh to your list of Sir, conquests. Sir what? Kenneth National Treasure <laughs> yeah. Branagh. You're talking to two Northern Irish people and you're dissing Sir Kenneth Branagh. I'm not, I'm not apologising oh. for that. Jack Ryan, his accent is... Wow. It's it's like it's sub Blofeld. Where do you get off? <laughs> Who do you think you are, Nugent? No, that's not a nickname. That's no, his actual no. surname. Uh, <laughs> where does this hate come from, man? No, I I I love I love Ken. I love Ken. Hey, I just, go you're backtracking now. I, no, own own it. Uh, own the hatred. I'm very excited about it. And I'm sure his accent will be very good. I, I have no doubt. <laughs> Who are you gonna hate next time? I don't I'm I'm a lover, not a hater. <laughs> yeah. I'm not so sure. Uh, any more movie news? Are we I good? Think we Are we can out? Leave it there. We can, we're out. We're, we're out, out of movie we, news. Okay. Well, there is. Uh, oh, there is another TV news. Ooh, First yeah. poster for Game of Thrones season <laughs> yeah, I saw six. This. I saw this. Came out this week. Jon Snow is on the first poster for Game of Thrones season six, and that is a big deal. If you have seen Game of Thrones, if you haven't seen Game of Thrones, or if you're not caught up, then we won't say any more than that. But it is mm-hmm. a big deal. Mm-hmm. He's seen bloodied uh, and on the poster yeah mm. and that, just that in itself is substantial and it, it says simply April, April which is a mistake because that's not even his name <laughs> okay let's have a guest let's have this week's guest it is T. Hanks giving so let's give T. Hanks uh, he's a ruddy legend he was one of the world's biggest movie stars in the 1980s and the 1990s and the noughties and just for good measure he remains one of the world's biggest movie stars in whatever the hell we're calling this period. What is it? The teens? The the tens? The The tenties? I like that. I like that. He's a star of Splash, The Money Pit, The Burbs, Saving Private Ryan, Philadelphia, Forrest Gump, Captain Phillips, Dragnet. Am I missing? I must be missing. I'm missing You're loads missing out. quite a lot. I'm missing yes. quite a few. Out. He's made more than those films. Uh, he's retained with his old pal and our former editor, Steven Spielberg, for the fourth movie together, Bridge of Spies, which is out this week. He is, of course, the great Tom Hanks. Uh, I spoke to him recently about that film, about the man he calls El Jefe. And I asked him a question that I've wanted to know the answer to for the last 26 years. 26 years, Helen. Wow. I feel old. Yeah, it's probably longer That's than John's as old as I am, yes. Get the fuck out. I, I mean, enjoy the Tom Hanks interview. <laughs> We're delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by Tom Hanks. How are you, sir? I'm very good. Good to, good to see you. Uh, good to see you. And Bridge of Spies is a fantastic film. And it, it, it opens, uh, it, it takes place in a period of history that started around about the time you were one. No, I was born in 1956. Yeah. Uh, oh, well, actually, yeah. The, so defense, April, yeah. the arrest of, and defense of uh, Rudolph Abel, yeah. Mm. I actually think that was before, slightly before I was born. Okay. Yeah. So and then we, we, we compress everything. Actually, I, we don't specifically say these things happen one after another. We, we just let time go by without putting up one of those, those title cards that say four years later. We just, <laughs> we just took that out. There are little mentions every now and again. You can, you can hear 1960 being said and, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. But, uh, for example, you, you were one years old. Unless you were a 
particularly prodigious child. I imagine this is something that you learned about much, much later in life. Well, I was cognizant of the Cuban Missile Crisis Mm -hmm. uh, when it happened because my parents were talking about it quite a bit. And the we saw in the newspapers where what cities were within range of the missiles from from Cuba. And uh, I was aware of Nikita Khrushchev proclaiming, we will bury you at one point. And he was talking about economically and intellectually yeah. and technologically. But to the mind of a four five, six year old, that means he's going to dig a hole, throw us in it and, <laughs> and, and uh, put dirt over us. So the fact is, growing up, the Cold War was literally it was it was on the news every night some form of it was some some comment on the soviet us versus them the soviet union here red china there uh was part and parcel to uh to the news media growing up the discussions in social science classes at school and the the inevitability of a conflict between us and them was discussed all the time i mean not just to the point of duck and cover and uh, air raid shelters and you know atomic fallout there was a kind of credence given over to the the hypothetical I mean, there was like, for example, I don't. Did you have the? Did you have a, the Twilight Zone over here? We you did. Know, okay, so yeah. there was there was an amazing. And I I will say I remember seeing it as a kid. I probably didn't, but there's a great Twilight Zone episode that had Charles Bronson and okay. Elizabeth Montgomery, uh-huh. who went off to play Samantha the Witch and Bewitch yes. later on. Yeah. She had no lines to Charles Bronson, and they were veterans, survivors of two opposing armies in a bombed out city. That was somewhere in the future. And you thought that they were going to find each other and kill each other. And instead, Charles Bronson screamed at her, I don't want any more of your war. Go away. And at the end, Charles Bronson has put on a civilian suit and he's wearing a tie without a shirt on. And he walks and he sees the enemy soldier across the street. And it's her. And he doesn't know if he's going to have to pull out his gun and shoot or not. Instead, she shows herself coming up from behind a bombed out car and she's wearing a dress, you see. So now and that took place in World War Three. You see, Star Trek made references to World War Three. And so all the time that I was growing up, this was something that was going to happen and it was going to happen in our lifetimes. And it was inevitable because communism said that we will take over the world. The mm-hmm. whole Lenin, the whole aspect of Leninism was it can't really come into play until the entire world is is a, is a worker's paradise. Yeah. So um, uh, I will say that as soon as I became some sort of some aspect of being cognizant of the way the world worked, World War Three uh, and us versus them was part of it. But this this story, uh, the, the specifics of this story, Rudolf Abel and James B. Donovan, is that something that you became aware of when the script landed on your desk or were you aware of this before? We were aware, I very much knew the story of Francis Gary Powers and the U2 aspect. I knew that he was returned somehow. I knew nothing about James B. Donovan. I knew nothing about Rudolph Abel. I knew nothing about the particulars of it. So in that case, as a matter of fact, when I heard that uh, there was there was this story that, that Mr. Spielberg had it, you know, Stephen, uh, Stephen's talking about doing a Cold War story about Francis Gary Powers. And I said, well, I know who Francis Gary Powers is. What is it going to be? You know, is this yeah. going to be... You know, checkpoint Charlie and phones ringing and guys in fedoras smoking cigarettes and kind of came out that. <laughs> yeah. uh, but then upon reading it, um, and I did not read uh, uh, Matthew Sharman's draft. Uh, I was saying, well, I'd okay. love to read that. And they said, well, wait, because the Coens are turning in a new draft. <laughs> and I, when I read the Cohen brothers draft, I, it was right off the bat. I was saying, how come I don't know this? And uh, very quickly, I did a little bit of research and found out really how authentic 
the story that they were telling was. This is your fourth collaboration with Steven Spielberg, yeah. our, our former editor, for, oh, yeah. one, for one glorious issue really? on Really? Really? Um, didn't, put me, didn't give me a pay rise. Can you believe that? And, well, does the editor have that, uh, that, course, that yeah. ability, or is Absolutely. that the publisher? Yeah, that's, that's the editor. Well, I'm going to root will. for it. You know. <laughs> that's two votes, you and me. So when Stephen wants to make a movie with you, does he simply call up and go, okay, Tom, let's go. Me and you, Bridge of Spies, let's make it happen. Or uh, what's the, it's a process slightly more involved than that. I'm, I'm well, sure. when there's an actual screenplay involved, mm-hmm. I, 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 get the, I get sort of like a call saying, hey, look, I got this thing and I think it's really interesting. Uh, and it comes along. Now, it's going to be tilted in a direction if it's coming from <laughs> Stephen. You might, you might have the natural proclivity to think, boy, I really hope I like this thing. And I really hope I work it out. I will tell you that the four movies that we made, Saving Private Ryan, I never read any version of it that, that wasn't officially from Stephen. For The Terminal, actually, we that script had existed uh, that I was working on. It was Sasha Gravasi, who was the screenwriter, and it had gone through a couple of iterations. And then Stephen read it and said, boy, I'd really like to do this. Mm-hmm. So that was the opposite. They were working on Catch Me If You Can with Leo. And I read the screenplay as a just as a writing uh, sample of, I think, uh, Mr. Nathanson, who wrote it. Mm-hmm. And I I crashed that movie. <laughs> I, I you just turned up on set one. Well, day. no, what happened was, is I, I read it and I knew that Leo was going to be playing a Frank Abagnale. And when I read it, the, the character at that time, it was called Joe Shea. But Carl Hanred, the FBI guy, mm-hmm. I called up and said, look, I'm, I'm not trying to crash anything and I'm not trying to stick my head in this. But you have a part in here that is the equal to Javert in, in Les Miserables. You, you can't have a movie called Catch Me If You Can without somebody who is constantly chasing him. I'd like to play who's constantly chasing him because, as I said, you can't cut him. You can all, you're always going to have to cut back to the guy who is chasing the, the <laughs> hero. So I horned in on that all on my own. So there you have all those various permutations. And Leo gave the okay, and, and Stephen let me in. Uh, but it literally, I said, look, I'm not trying to horn in. It's got to be okay with Leo. So Leo yeah. said, oh, yeah, sure. So that's how that became the, the three-hander that it was. And on this case, it was just, you know, I, I heard about it, and I didn't do anything. And I didn't read it until Stephen said, look, I think this is really great. And we compare notes on all sorts of history anyway. We're always, you know, sending each other photographs or stuff off the Internet. Or, you know, we'll have you know, screenings of documentaries that we fall in love with. Mm-hmm. And that was that. And he, you know, he told me that he was always thinking of me as James Donovan. So, mm-hmm. uh, hey, man, looks like I got invited to a damn good dance. <laughs> in the uh, in the 10 years between the terminal and this movie, had you come close to working together? Uh, well, we always have had this storytelling bond because we have produced a bunch of long form television mm-hmm. miniseries that definitely have a different sort of work dynamic than me being an actor in one of his films. But that means we get to have like for where we did Band of Brothers. That was that came about very quickly right after we did Saving Private Ryan. We made it happen pretty quickly. But the Pacific, those take three, four, five years in order to get up. And it means we get together and talk about what fascinates us and Mm -hmm. the story beats that we're going to try to incorporate into these into these big things. So I think I have a working relationship now that is him that is based on sweat and anxiety on my side (laughs) because you don't want to go to work uh, in the morning and have Steven Spielberg disappointed. In, no. in the work you did, or somehow regretting the fact that he cast you in it, I actually think I, I think I work harder for Stephen now than I did when than, than the first time. Take nothing for granted. Uh, not, you can't. Yeah. You know, here's a, here's the interesting thing about all the movies that I've done with Stephen. I will say that 
everybody has something fascinating to do. Even the day players, the people who only come in for one day and only work one day. Stephen will want them to come in with a great idea and he will be empowered by stuff that they they come in and want to do. And if you take a look at Bridge of Spies, which has, you know, a number of friends of mine that were in it from from other jobs, I have to say it's extraordinary that everybody has something interesting to do. No one just comes in, Mm. hands over a telegram, and then walks out. Everybody has a unique sort of character tidbit that they get to play out. And it it makes for the better tapestry of the movie. It's been a while since you were a a day player. If indeed you ever were. uh, I've had a couple of weekly contracts. (laughs) Did you show up with uh, with ideas? or What was that situation? Oh, oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah, you have to. I mean, I I got together with Mark Rylance... before we started shooting and all of the all of the guys who plays agents and I said guys this is what I know about the boss mm. he will he will have an idea of where the camera is going to be but everything else he's looking for is come he wants he wants to be inspired by everybody so let's be armed for bear as as, <laughs> as the case may be in regards to this I was lucky that James Donovan wrote as much about his life as he did mm. he did a very long book about the whole entire case with Rudolph Abel that I got an awful lot of things from, although it's not the major part of the film. Mm. I got a lot of the relationship that he had with Rudolph Abel from that. But he also wrote a very microscopic examination of the six days that he was in Berlin negotiating the spy swap. And I got a ton of small little details, including the cold. When I came in, I said, you know, boss, um, he caught a vicious cold on the plane ride over in an uninsulated, unheated military aircraft. And so for, for the first four days he was in Berlin, he was miserable. And he said, that's great. You'll start with a cold and you'll give you'll give uh, Hoffman the cold. He'll have it by the time you go home. And so he does, see, that's an example of what he will do with some some idea you might have. How hard is it to convincingly convey a cold on screen? Well, you, you know, you have you have to, you know, kind of go there a little bit. Uh, and you have there. There's a nasal spray that you just keep pushing. It's not. It's not pleasant. Uh, but you know, you work it out with the. You know, keep pulling out the the handkerchief. It's very hard to fake a sneeze. Fake sneeze is really usually an, an obvious thing. Coughing's quite easy, I imagine. But well, you can, all, yeah, you, you, just, you, can, you can always cough. But, but then there, there's that. You know, the the empty headedness. You know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. I say, look, you. I'll do a little bit, but you guys are going to have to do something with the EQ and the mix in order to, <laughs> in order to give me that. You know, that congested head sound. There's also something else that really intrigued me about. There's just a little character note that I really, really liked, uh, which is that uh, when James Donovan says a number, he tends to repeat it. He goes one, one, mm-hmm. one uh, several times throughout the movie. Did that come from the book or was that something you... No, that was the Coens. Uh, that okay. was a, one of those kind of things that the Cohen brothers bring into it. They, they write dialogue the way I describe it as it, it scans, uh, almost like literature or, you know, like uh, Shavian dialogue, like George Bernard Shaw or Shakespeare. It has a cadence and it has... It has a logic to it so that every character sounds very different from the other characters. Yeah. It's not like people have a unified style. And they wrote that. They wrote the one one ones and the two two twos and the three three threes. And I realized, well, that what that is, that's a negotiating skill. That's that's a tool. That's a trick that he uses yeah. in order to win the day or, or or get his point over. And you just take that and you man, you, you run with stuff like that. That's what you look for in a screenplay. It's amazing. So you still call Stephen 
the boss. I do, uh, or Mon General, uh, El Jefe. <laughs> I have a lot of, I got a lot of uh, nicknames for it. It's funny because you, uh, I like to get to the set early. I like to be done as ready as I can and get to the set while they're still setting up. And with Janusz, uh, his, his DP, and I now know Mitch Dubin, who's been his camera operator. So four movies, I know a lot of the people and he's worked mm. with a lot of the same po- and And uh, we're all saying, okay, so we're going to be here. We're going to be this. Blah, blah, blah. And uh, the question comes around. We say, okay, well, that's about as much as we could do until the boss gets here. Well, let's see what the boss, <laughs> let's see what the boss says about this. Because, uh, you know, you're not going to do anything unless he says, I, uh, don't do that there. Do that over there. Save that for later. We're going to do something else. He is the boss. The director's always the boss. <laughs> but there's a lot of, you know, oh, Grant, oh, great one. You know, you can say, you can say things like that. Hey, Mr. Mr. Smarty Pants, that comes up every now and again. <laughs> hey, Mr. Smarty Pants, are we going to flip this at the end? Are we just going to go around? You're going to pull back. Are you going to flip a lens or what? But you can't go straight in with a Mr. Smarty Pants. You have to know the man no, for, no, for several gotta years. Get, you no, you got to you got to get there. Day player, day one. Mr. Smarty Pants. Yeah, uh, not no, good. Not good. I wouldn't recommend anybody walking in for a first meeting and saying to Stephen, "Well, aren't you Mr. Smarty Pants?" <laughs> I would recommend El Jefe or uh, Oh Great Exalted Leader. You can always try that. Fair enough. Over the uh, the, the ten years of Stephen and you have been making movies apart, have there been any roles that you have coveted that he has directed? For example, you know, if you called him up and going. Yeah, I could be Lincoln. I could be Indiana Jones. No, no, no. no. Indiana Jones, yeah. maybe. I uh, know that that's that's kind of ticking. Um, <laughs> no, but you know, he actually plays the nature of what he's going to be doing pretty close to the vest. There has been some stuff that that he sent to me or I've sent to him, but they're just germs of ideas, or they're things that are so far down the pike that part of the question is is well, if this becomes something. Would uh, would you be interested in it? And there's some stuff that is kind of like I take off the table right off the bat. Part okay. maybe because I'm, you know my my combo plate is pretty full sometimes. Sure. But also this I, I wouldn't know what to do with it. But when like for example we will be collaborating again on on a big miniseries about uh, the air war and that came about because HBO came back to us and said would you guys like to give us another chapter in the sort of Band of Brothers saga, the Band of Brothers in the Pacific. Hmm. And my first question was, says, do you really want it? <laughs> and they say, yeah, it's working out pretty good. I said, well, let me talk to the boss and see what he has to say <laughs> about it. So we, you know, we get together and we just begin to start noodling stuff that won't come to fruition for another three or four years. Oh, wow. I can't talk to you without talking about my favorite Tom Hanks film. Which one is? The Burbs. Oh, my Lord. Really? The yeah, Burbs. It really is. Interesting little, interesting little suburban nightmare there. <laughs> yeah. No, that was fun. Yeah. It was fun. It was a story about really about a guy that should have gone on vacation. That's what when I was talking to Joe Dante at the beginning of it, I said, "Okay, this is not a story about horrible things. This is a story about a man who should have packed the car and driven away from his house. He's got two weeks off. And if he stays home, he's going to be driven absolutely insane. Mm -hmm. It was a fun movie because we made it in the summertime. At Universal Studios on the back lot, you know, that's it's the it's actually what became known as Wisteria Lane yeah. on uh, Desperate, Desperate Housewives. Desperate Housewives yeah. That was the same spot, the same literally the same houses that we used <laughs> uh, for the film. And it was a it was a great group of people. And we laughed an awful lot. And we had I don't know. Uh, here's a little background about making movies. There's a schedule that's called splits. Mm-hmm. It says, can we uh, you want to make every movie you can shooting the schedule called splits? Because 
what that means is, is you go into work about noon or one o'clock and you shoot during the daylight hours. Mm-hmm. And then that's the first half of the day. And the second half of the day is for darkness. And so you have to wait for darkness. So you shoot until you lose the light for shooting the day. And then you have about two and a half hours off while they're moving the condors and the lights into place and they're waiting for the sun to go down so they can shoot the night shoots. And then you leave about midnight or one o'clock in the morning. And it's the absolute best way. In order to, <laughs> you get enough sleep. You see your family. You have a nice two hours off about in the middle of the day. Yeah. And if you're making like a, a gang comedy, yeah. it's an awfully good hang in order to hang out. <laughs> There's one thing I wanted to ask you about specifically in the burbs. I don't know if you remember this, but towards the end, after the house has blown up and yeah. there's chaos, chaos reigns everywhere, you appear at the top of a small flight of steps. Oh, and I come you, down the way I come down the, the stairs. Down, it's yeah. one of the greatest bits of physical comedy I've ever ah, seen. Ah, ah. How did you, I, I look at that, I still marvel at how you <laughs> did that. I know exactly what you're talking about. And um, I was talking to Joe and we were I was trying to to physicalize the the shock waves that were still going through his head. Mm-hmm. And the, the stairs were there. And quite frankly, I don't think I could do that today without <laughs> twisting an ankle. But I, I would like to give myself some degree of credit. I think I was so much in the moment of being shell-shocked and being nearly blown up that there. I know there's a stoop and there's about five or six steps that lead yes. down to the walk. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of like flop my feet down yeah. them as opposed to taking any, any Almost real like a human slinky in a way. You just... Yeah, yeah. I was a younger man. I was a younger man and I had stronger stronger calf muscles in those days but I know exactly what you're talking about and luckily I only had to do it like three or four times because I, I have a feeling I, I probably could have done some ligament damage on, on take eight but as it was I think we only had to go up to take four well thank you for clearing something up that's been uh, that's been in my mind for a long long time um, I just want to ask you very very quickly sure. uh, what you're doing next I mean obviously you're still working on I, on Sully for, I have uh, yeah. yes Clint Eastwood is uh, directing me in Sully which is a story about the pilot who mm-hmm. landed the, the plane on the Hudson and saved everybody's life. I also uh, finished the Inferno with Ron Howard, Indeed. which is another Robert Langdon, Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown story. We shot that in Florence and in uh, Budapest. I did a week on a movie that my company is producing called The Circle that James Ponsolt directed along with uh, the fabulous Emma Watson. And uh, I did a film about a, a year and a half ago. I did a, a movie based on an, another Dave Eggers novel called mm-hmm. Hologram for the King with Tom Tickfer, mm-hmm. who was one of the co-directors of Cloud Atlas and who also did Run, Low the Run. So I've got a lot of stuff that has yet to come out. Busy but, man. Uh, Are you finished on Toy Story 4? Have you finished oh, no. To- the Toy Story movies go on and on and on. You go in about you go in about every four months and do a little bit more recording and that's now not coming out until I believe 88 so I'll be I'll be working on that for the next two years wow okay and is it a rom-com Toy Story mm. as I guess no one no 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 there's it's a romantic adventure man it's uh, a <laughs> there is some relationship dynamics that go down between uh, Woody and uh, Bo Peep <laughs> no lie. No lie. Woody and Bo Peep. Look I, for it now. I cannot wait to see it. Uh, Tom Hanks, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Great indeed. pleasure. Lovely Thank talking you. to you. Tom Hanks there. Yeah, he was as Tom Hanksy as you would you could possibly dream. It was amazing. And to finally, uh, no luck question about the burbs that uh, to get that answer about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was in dreamland. He was sporting his sully hair. Even better. Uh, which meant he was like dressed as a big blue monster. Hey, it's not even his Pixar character, you Ages. Let's move on. Shall we? Let's talk about reviews. We've got quite a lot to get through this week. Let's start with Bridge of Spies. Uh, Steven Spielberg reunited with Tom Hanks to tell a Cold War thriller based on a true story uh, with a script by the Coen brothers. Mm. Ooh. 
yes, co-written. I think it was co-written. A, yes, they they sort of retouched a, an earlier draft. They did. Something. They did. Matt Charman, the British uh, writer, wrote the initial draft, mm. and then the Coen Brothers came in and went, "Hey, we're going to do it. We're doing it." And, um, and then, I'm not sure that's how, what they sound like. That's what they do. That's their creative hey, process. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hey, what's so the rumpus? It's 1957 in the movie. Not right now. Uh, the Cold War is in full swing, and uh, an artist played by Mark Rylance, uh, called Rudolf Abel, is arrested on charges of spying for the Soviet Union. So the Americans want to showcase the fact that they're giving him due process without really a hundred percent really going to town on the whole justice thing. Um, so they line up a lawyer called James Donovan, who's played by Hanks, to defend him. A short time afterwards, he, he's convicted anyway. Uh, a short time afterwards, a U-2 pilot called Francis Gary Powers, played by Austin Stowell, crash lands in the Soviet Union. And basically, the Americans are very keen, obviously, to get him back. And the Russians are equally keen to get Abel back. So there is the the, the sort of the setup for a deal. Um, but nobody can be seen to be dealing with each other on this. So uh, Donovan is dispatched to Cold War Berlin to try and negotiate mm-hmm. a prisoner exchange. Mm-hmm. That's the basic setup. That's the basic setup. Yeah. Uh, obviously, there's a bit more to it than that, as yes. well as some complications and whatnot. But Very uh, much so. yeah, this is the antithesis. This is the sixth spy movie of the year. Uh, <laughs> uh, following on from Kingsman, Spy, Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation, Spectre, and The Man from Uncle. And it's a complete antithesis, I would say, of all those films. This is the, the emphasis here is on dialogue and brain power, yeah. rather than people pointing guns at each other and clinging onto the sides of planes, which I, is I amazing. It has its place, but yeah, Ian, Ian Nathan's review has said it's Atticus Finch trying to do George Smiley, mm-hmm. which is actually pretty spot on because the closest analogy mm-hmm. of this one is Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy in recent years, in the sense that the tension comes from men talking in rooms, and they are incredibly tense scenes, but it's not you know, running for the wall or driving a car over it or, you know, zip lining over it like they did in, in Man From U.N.C.L.E. Um, it's a very mature, growing up film. You can feel the cold coming off the screen, you know. Uh, it's Jan Kaminski again, but it's just the... He's got that sort of paranoia flavour of the kind of the great Cold War films. He's got that sort of almost a little touch of the third man about it, you know. it's It's just... It's cold, it's wet, it's miserable. Uh, Donovan isn't having a very nice time, but he's a very sharp guy. He's very good at what he does. And, and he just goes and does it. Um, and it's sort of, uh, sort of brilliant, actually. Mm. There's some uh, amazing performances in this film. Yeah. I think Tom Hanks, I mean, you know, it's Tom Hanks. He's utterly reliable. He's, he's just a safe pair of hands. It's not a showy performance. No, not at all. It's not, um, it's not bombastic. It's very much uh, mature and sort of very restrained. I think Mark Rylance, for me, is the star of this film. I think he is like the heart of this film. He is, he is, he's incredible. He's so understated. But in that understatement, he brings this amazing sort of humanity to what could be a, a very easy villain, I suppose. Yeah. I think it's interesting because he's been this huge star on stage for years now. If you if you were lucky enough to see Jerusalem, like he'll have blown you away in that, for example. Um, and he's only just breaking through really on screen. Um, there was obviously... Uh, Wolf Hall last year on TV and now this I feel like it's finally kind of beginning to work for him let's not forget the gunman in which he, uh, he or, or was, we he could was, forget it he was in that. <laughs> yeah we, we could try and forget yeah. it actually but um, but no I think I he mean, has it's a, <laughs> in it's, it's a, you know it's a good cast across the board as you would yeah. expect because who doesn't want to work with Steven Spielberg um, and and it's just underplayed uh, brilliantly tense I think and and just just really 
interesting. I think it's really interesting what it says about the world now as much as the world at the time of the Cold War um, and what it says about America now uh, as opposed to the time of the Cold War. It's a really, really fascinating film. I loved it. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, great performances all around. Spielberg magic. It's it's a very slow film, yeah. I think, which is a very mm. interesting thing. Uh, it's not the kinetic Spielberg of the past, so don't go expecting incredible camera moves or, or set pieces. Uh, but I really like the script. The script's fantastic, uh, and Hanks nails it. Um, and you can you can see all those little Coen Brothers touches. I think Rylance is great. Um, he's definitely going to be in the supporting actor race. Uh, we didn't talk about the fact that this week Creed opens in the States and seems to have crashed the Oscar race in a big way. We probably should talk about that in due course. Um, but yeah, he's very, very good. I think Hanks is great in this. Um, but the dialogue is fantastic. There's a little repeated motif all the way through. We talk about it in the Tom Hanks thing, but there's another one where, uh, you know, a Rudolph Abel just seems like the most laid back, relaxed person in the world. He's facing near a certain death or incarceration and he just takes it on the chin at all times and there's a repeated motif where Hanks keeps saying to him you know you don't look bothered by this and uh, Abel always replies would it help? <laughs> Which seems to me and I don't know whether the Coen brothers wrote that line but it feels very Coen-y um, it and it's, it's a nice mixture of, of the Coens and Spielberg good stuff four stars for Bridge of Spies which ordinarily would make it the film of the week Ah, uh, this is quite a a tough week, I'll this be honest. This is a hell of a week. This mm. is this is a very, very good week. Uh, because next up we got Todd Haynes' Oscar botherer, mm. Carol. John, what do you think make of this? Well, what's it about? So Carol is uh, a new film from Todd Haynes, who is a very good director who we know from Far From Heaven uh, and I'm Not There. This is a sort of romantic period drama uh, set in 1952 in New York City. Um, and it stars Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara. And it's sort of a, basically a love story uh, of a love that dare not speak its name. It's at a time when homosexuality is obviously very much frowned upon, essentially illegal. And Kate Blanchett plays this uh, housewife who embarks on a sort of illicit affair with Rooney Mara. And it's a very simple love story in, in many ways. It's, you know, they, they, they just have an affair and Carol has to go through dealing with a broken marriage but it's it's beautifully done. It's one of the most beautiful th- films I think I've I've seen this this year. It's shot on super 16 millimeter, which gives us this gorgeous grainy quality. There's absolutely stunning cinematography, and it's it's just very sensitive and and a very sort of thoughtful portrayal of love and romance. I spoke to Todd Haynes this week actually, and he said it, obviously this is a very specific story about homosexuality before it was accepted in society but there is a very universal story behind it this sort of sexual awakening this sort of exploration of love that i think speaks to a lot of people and it's done in such a beautiful and a thoughtful way uh, i can't recommend it enough yeah it's it's absolutely fantastic this yeah i mean and and it you know it is a love story but it unfolds so slowly that you actually have time to get involved with it yourself in a way and and, and very much root for the characters and and very much you know, you, basically, the tension in this film is—is—is is, is everything going to be okay? Are, are are these two, despite everything stacked against them, going to going to find a way to be together? Because it is not clear for a very long time if they actually will, mm. um, and and certainly it's then not clear, you know, if they can find a way to to stay together. So it's it's a really um, yeah beautiful film, beautifully mm. told. Um, they sort of lift the framing device from. A brief encounter. Um, we sort of meet them later on, and then kind of flash backwards. But 
it's uh, yeah, absolutely fantastic, fantastic film. We should mention this based on a novel by Patricia Highsmith, yes. uh, who created obviously the talented Mr. Ripley novels. But this is a very personal novel for her because it, you know, it, it, it essentially it's not entirely, but there's elements of an autobiographical nature in, in very the story. Much so, yeah. yeah, so uh, uh, the novels for the price of salt um, and. The performance in this are fantastic. Uh, Kate Blanchett obviously we take for granted, but Rooney Mara uh, won the or shared the best act- actress prize at uh, Cannes back in May mm. when this film first launched, and uh, is is equally fantastic. She, so. has, she looks exactly like Audrey Hepburn at times. Mm. This. I mean, you know, yeah. she's obviously a, a, a yeah. beautiful woman at the best times or the worst of times, but <laughs> she looks absolutely stunning in this. And and both of them, I would say, mm. all, all credit as well to makeup and hair and and and. Uh, costume as well for, by Sandy Powell uh, because they look incredible. If you are a lady watching this, I would really make sure that your lipstick game is on form before <laughs> you go in, or you're going to come out feeling so scruffy. I certainly did. So, um, yeah, gentlemen, I guess brush your hair or whatever you do. I don't know. Uh, so, four stars for Carol. Uh, it's fantastic. Fine, I think, with uh, Bridge of Spies for a film of the week. A fantastic tale, as John said, of sexual awakening. And speaking of tales of sexual awakening, it's The Good Dinosaur. Oh, God. Uh, which is. Not speaking no, of sexual awakening. No, of course no. not. No. Uh, which is Pixar's, uh, Pixar's second movie this year. Because Pixar movies are like London buses. You, uh, you wait ages for one, then two come along at once. They cost millions to produce. And loads of people get on board. Uh, so what's this one about? And following in the wake of, of course, the, the brilliant Inside Out. This one is a simpler story in, in a lot of ways. So it's uh, set in a world where the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs didn't. And so a few million years later, they've evolved into sort of uh, at least to develop farming. That's that's as much as we really see here. And a little family of dinosaurs live on a little farm. Um, and there's there's three kids in the family. Two of them are very bold and outgoing and, and, you know, tough little kids. And Arlo, the youngest, is a big old scaredy cat. Uh, and unfortunately, it is Arlo one day who is swept off down river. Uh, when he falls accidentally into the river that runs by their house and Mm. ends up a very, very long way from home. And the only thing with him is this little, uh, what he calls a critter, uh, but it's a little, um, essentially a boy. Uh, And in this world, humans have not developed high faculties yet. He's he's a little bit more intelligent than a dog, maybe. Um, (laughs) And he runs, but he runs around on four legs. uh, And he basically, Arlo adopts him essentially as a pet. And then the two of them try to make their way home. So it's a very kind of A to B story in a lot of ways. There's a lot of charm in this, as you would expect of Pixar. You know, there's the, the two characters, the bond between them kind of grows from something like hatred to begin with, because Arlo, you know, blames this critter for a lot of the stuff that's gone wrong. His name is Spot, by the way, the little boy. <laughs> but but it kind of grows to be a mutual respect and a mutual affection and a real true friendship, as, as Pixar is so known for. Mm-hmm. Um, they're also great little kind of characters along the way there's a weird sort of a is it a stegosaurus type creature who's like got all these little other animals living on his horns and he's this weird kind of slightly trippy kind of shamanic figure uh, there is a uh, there is a scene where they actually get drunk and then have a hangover on fermented berries by accident, which is a weird thing to see in a Pixar movie. Uh, there's also some T-Rex cowboys, one of whom is voiced by Sam Elliott. Mm. And there's some gorgeous little touches there. You've got to you've got to admire the way that the T Rexes, they kind of sit very upright as if they're riding a horse, but they're obviously just being a T Rex. And and they say hia, and I was kind of like, who are you hiaing? Is it your own legs? <laughs> That's right. They're whipping themselves. They're whipping themselves, yeah, into a frenzy. That's really good. Um, but I mean, there are so many just gorgeous little touches to this film. You know, there's there's a bit where there's sort of. Um, 
what looks like upside down shark fins coming through low hanging cloud Mm. Uh, it's one of the most gorgeous shots of the year until you figure out what exactly is going on I have never seen water animated better I have never seen more gorgeous landscapes this has just a laundry list of, of beautiful, beautiful moments in it. I think the problem is that that landscape feels much more developed and much more sophisticated than the story taking place in front of it. And you have essentially a cartoon dinosaur. You know, he's a very blobby, bright green looking f- creature and he doesn't have the sophistication of, that we maybe expect from Pixar, especially coming straight after Inside Out. Yeah, I think we were treated to a fairly high bar with Inside Out. I think that was such a sophisticated and, and, and just brilliant movie. And this is a much more simple story. And we know that it did have a few production troubles. That it was Very much so, yeah. Uh, the original director was replaced and they essentially had to restart from scratch uh, only about a year ago. Mm-hmm. And you do see a little bit some of those troubles on screen just in terms of how the story doesn't feel quite finished and perhaps the characters aren't quite developed enough. But I still love this film. I think this is a, another you know, fantastic entry from Pixar. As you say, it is one of the most beautiful bits of animation I think we've ever seen. I was half expecting David Attenborough to be <laughs> commentating at some point. The landscapes, the, the scenery is just... I mean, it's, it's, it's porn for your eyes. It's really... It's lovely. <laughs> porn for your eyes? Does that really work? Well, if it's porn the, is porn the for your of eyes, sexual awakening. <laughs> <laughs> Only in your head, Chris. But no, it is... I mean, it's, it's a lesser Pixar, but it's still a Pixar. Pixar and, yes. and, and therefore it gets you know a, a lot right there are elements here there are little echoes of Ice Age um, and there are little echoes of um, How to Train Your Dragon especially in one scene involving some sticks and drawing in sand but that's not to take away from the rest of it which is very good so we give it three stars which is of course a recommendation indeed lesser Pixar yeah okay but still Pixar yeah. but still Pixar which is good okay so this is going to be interesting the last film of the week that we're going to discuss got four stars from Empire Magazine in fact from me <laughs> but Helen mm. doesn't like it nope so it's Black Mass yeah it is have at it so Black Mass this is the new film from Scott Cooper who we mentioned earlier it's about uh, an FBI agent called John Connolly uh, played by Joel Edgerton he grew up in Southie which we know from all those Matt and Ben films Baston Baston um and, uh, and he grew up near uh, a Boston gangster called Whitey Bulger, uh, who's played by Johnny Depp. Um, he wasn't really friends with Bulger. He was friends with his older brother, who's um, Billy Bulger, who's played by Benedict Cumberbatch. Because you see Cumberbatch and Depp and you think, yes, <laughs> those two were born to play siblings. Anyway, um, Billy Bulger is a very respectable figure, a, lo- uh, a state politician, very, very well-to-do and, and well-respected. Whitey, not so much. He's, you know, he's already been in Alcatraz by the time we meet him. He is not a nice man. But Edgerton sees an opportunity to basically bring Whitey in as a sort of informant to use him to, to undo some of the bigger mob figures in the city. And Whitey sees this as an opportunity to get rid of some of his enemies and manipulate the FBI into essentially doing his dirty work for him. Mm-hmm. So it seems a match made in heaven, mm-hmm. but of course things don't work out terribly well for all concerned. I should say this is based, of course, on a true story. It is very much based on a true story, absolutely. Yes. Whitey Bulger was one of the uh, inspirations for, I believe, Jack Nicholson's character in The Departed? I think. Uh, that is, uh, I believe, the case, yeah. yes. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Where should we start? I mean, I, I like this film. I gave it four stars. You should probably start then. Do you want me to say why I gave it four stars? Yeah, I do. It was in focus. <laughs> That's always good. That's a star in itself. What I thought was interesting about this movie was that there's a, a really cliched gangster movie here. 
Uh, and the fact that it's based on true, a true story doesn't immediately excuse it from being cliched. There's a there's a scene, and I start my review with this. There's a scene where Whitey and some of his his crew drive along, get out, walk along, you know, to this really deserted, barren part of of, of Boston. Chat, 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 chat. A guy's running his mouth off, and then he doesn't see it coming, but the audience do. He gets popped in the head. And we've seen this in a thousand gangster films. We've seen it in a thousand gangster movies, and, and many of them are better than than the gangster movie in Black Mass. That's not what interested me about the film. What interested me about the film was that that's as cliched as it gets. From that point on, it turns into more, I think, John Connolly's story, the Joel Edgerton story of a cop who, well, sorry, of an FBI agent who's in way over his head and who's seduced by the dark side um, of the force. Poor old, poor old Uncle Owen. He gets seduced by the dark side of the force. Uh, and I thought that was really interesting, a wrinkle that we hadn't seen before. And I thought that the, uh, I thought that, that side of the film was very, very good. The relationship between Whitey Bulger and John Connolly and Edgerton is fantastic. And I think another nailed on Best Supporting Actor Oscar nominee for his performance in this. Mm-hmm. And that aspect of the film I thought was great. And the performances are very, very good. Well, that aspect of the fa- film, I'm with you. But my problem is I didn't think that was the thrust of the story and it certainly wasn't enough of the focus of the story because I think that Scott Cooper essentially tried to have his cake and eat it by telling that interesting story we haven't seen before, the FBI agent who gets corrupted by his own informant and watered it down by also focusing equally if not more so on this gangster story and it may be true that doesn't mean it isn't something we've seen before because all of those beats have been done better in Goodfellas basically in the, in the Whitey Bulger story I mean Johnny Depp you know Whitey Bulger doesn't actually look that much like that so it's a little bit he went to a very extreme with his look and it doesn't According to Scott Cooper who I interviewed for the film he mm. does look a lot like that and real life people saw Johnny Depp and thought oh my god Whitey Bulger's just walked back in the room but I think and I, again this is something to talk about in the review I think he is too realistic in a way. It's over the top a little bit. And I think that what they're trying to do in this movie is portray Whitey Bulger as the devil. And I think... Which yes, is part- but, but if you're going to do that, I think you yeah. should do that in a smaller dose. Because there's too much attention given to Whitey Bulger as a character and his personal dilemmas if he is a demonic figure. That's a, that's a point of balance that the, the movie didn't hit for me. Mm. Um, if If he is essentially this sort of you know, demonic tempter figure. And there are a couple of scenes where they almost succeed in doing that. Then great. But then you don't also need... But then you don't also need all these stories about his concerns and his traumas and his worries and how he's trying to deal with all of those because that undermines any sort of devilish persona. It's just... I just... It didn't balance up for me. I had the same problem with Out of the Furnace, which I thought was just profoundly missing its own story. It hadn't developed its own plot enough, and I thought this Mm. had exactly the same problem. Um, But in terms of everyone... Yeah, but I will say that Johnny Depp was on first. So it's a Whitey Bulger film before Scott Cooper came onto it. Sure. And I think he, as a director, was probably more excited by the John Connolly stuff as well. And I think it's really interesting. You watch how... John Connolly's world seems to cave in on him as the net tightens around him, how he changes, how his personality changes, how his look changes. Uh, Joel Edgerton's hair seems to get even more towering <laughs> as, as the movie progresses. Uh, it sounds like, you know, I, you really didn't like the film, Helen, but I, I thought I thought that uh, it was... Johnny Depp's really interesting in the role. 
he's very good in the role. But I think I came out of it and I saw it with someone and I came out of it and they went, his look took me out of the film. Mm hmm. Because you're aware you're watching Johnny Depp wearing the most piercing blue eyes I've seen on screen since Meg Foster. And it's kind of just, it just it's, it's a little bit discomforting. And it, 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 does, it does remind you that you're watching the performance, which, of course, is always the case with movies. But I think everybody's in that doughy makeup as well. Edgerton gets away with it, I think. And, and Cumberbatch gets away with it also. I, I think you know, they, they age quite subtly over the, the course of the film, which takes place over about 20, 20, yeah, 20 yeah. years or so. I'm thinking more of... Um Jesse Clements. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, he he looks doughy from the word go, and I could understand if they were aging him up, but the aging makeup is just. Dist- I think the makeup all around is distracting. I think that's true. Mm. Um, I mean, I didn't actually have a problem with Johnny Depp's performance. I just had a problem mm. with the, the look. That, the, no, the character. You ju- you needed about ten percent of those scenes, mm. and this would have been a really strong film if you'd had ten percent of those, maybe thirty percent more Joel Edgerton. That would work. I also think like Billy Bulger is a more interesting character in many ways than Whitey Bulger. How do you become a politician like that with a brother like he had? That's a fascinating story. But just another gangster, I don't care. I Possibly, really but care. I'm you know I'm, if I Johnny Depp, the film is set in front of me and the performance is sure. set in front of me, and I think uh, you're right. I think the Joel Edgerton, John Connolly stuff is way more interesting than Whitey Bulger stuff. But it's not like that stuff is terrible. A lot oh, of it, it we may have seen. I don't think it is. I mean, a lot of it we may have seen before, but it's, I think it's pulled off very nicely. It's a very interesting immorality tale. Uh, I think the performances are excellent across the board. Uh, has a real sense of character and place. Uh, mm-hmm. I thought I liked it. Okay, well, agree to disagree. But I know that a lot of people don't. <laughs> this is interesting because yeah. I know a lot of people don't. Well, a lot of people. I've seen a lot of American critics as well, like criticize the accents. I, the accents seemed okay to me. I don't know. Yeah, I think I, I, I actually saw it up near Boston at the time, okay. and I saw it the day before I saw Spotlight, hmm. which I think has a better sense of place and that sort of slightly insular Boston community and, you know, the fact that everybody knows everybody and the sort of the Southie mentality, I think, comes across a bit more in Spotlight even. And even there, the Spotlight's been criticised for not playing that up enough. So I thought, you know, there's the one scene where he, Johnny Depp's character, meets the little old lady who sort of, and he's very nice to her and very considerate because she lives in the neighbourhood. There's scenes like that that, give you some idea of what this is mm. and why Connolly might be so pleased to be in this guy's orbit. But there's just, I don't know, there's not enough of it for me. I thought you would have liked it. It's about two old childhood friends and one's with them to the end of the line and oh. all that sort of stuff. <laughs> I'm just not emotionally ready for next June, okay? You're not ready for Black Mass Civil War. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Get ready for that. Okay, then, Black Mass, I gave it four stars. Empire gave it four stars. Helen, what would you give it? I'd probably give it two. Two stars. All right. Four plus two divided by two equals three stars. So three stars for Black Mass, which is, as we always say in the podcast, a recommendation. <laughs> there they go. We got there in the end. Uh-huh. All good. Uh, that's it for this week's Empire podcast. Uh, we, should, we should have arguments more often than the podcast, oh, I think. Yeah. It's so lovely to argue with you. Chris and Helen, Civil War. <laughs> <laughs> choose a side. Don't choose a side because loads of people will choose Helen. Uh, join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by another ruddy, bloody legend. Who's that? Lily Tomlin. No. Awesome. Mm, very excited about that. <laughs> will, will she be coming in nine to five? Uh, <laughs> we'll no, certainly, we'll certainly think... be doing big business on that one. I'm leaving. Uh, I'll say, hey, Lily, why not take all of me? I'll say, as she's, uh, yeah, yeah, please, yeah. she's please, leaving. Please stop. Lily Tomlin. Until then, it's goodbye from John. Cheerio, bye. Uh, it's goodbye from Helen. Toodaloo. 
and it's goodbye from me. I'm off to um, I'm off to I'm off to the states. Already? And I'm going to track down Mark Holton, and I'm going to point at him. You know what I'm going to say? What? Hey, it's Enrico Palazzo. <laughs> it's the last thing I would have expected. I know. Amazing. See you next week. <laughs>